Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. If you don't know me, my name is Ryan, um, and I have a bachelor's in the arts, <laughs> in art education, so, but I've been doing this long enough that I also have some qualification here. Um, I'm so glad that Jenna shared what she did uh, kind of before we were talking about what's happening in our community right now, because a lot of my heart in this season has been for people who feel like, it's almost like it numbs us, you know, that the Advent season, which we don't think of as Advent, we just think about it as like the bum rush towards Christmas, um, and, and the parties, and the, the gifts, and the decorating, and all of this, and, it, and it, something happens in that that can, we can become numb, um, or even can kind of trigger feelings of loneliness, and which is a tragedy, because the, the season, uh, above all seasons, is this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. And I don't want any of us to miss being present to God during this season. I don't want any of us to fall into numbness, uh, to loneliness, to despair, um, and certainly not to fall into the poison that, that is hurriness. I think this season, if anything, is for us to slow down, to learn to be more present. So I just want you to take a moment, just close your eyes, put your hands out in front of you, and let's just take a moment and recognize, like, we're here. Like, this is where we're at. We're not worrying about where we're going for lunch. We're not worrying about what we're going to be doing on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Or New We're here. This is the moment. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's be, rejoice and be glad in it. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are here, that you are with us, and that you are also for us, that you have something that you want to do in the hearts of your children here today. That's why we're here. We want to meet you and be transformed, to be sent back out into the world where everything looks different because we've encountered the living God. And maybe we're really aware that's why we're here, or maybe we just kind of glimpse that on the horizon, but regardless, we're here, and we, we're challenging you, God, uh, to do something, to show yourself to us, to reveal the deepest parts of who you are to us, so we might reveal within ourselves the deepest parts of who we are, that we are your children, we are your beloved, in whom you are well-pleased. May we receive the, the gift that is Jesus all over again, in this season. So may the words of my lips <clears throat> and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in, in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So during this Advent season, we've been looking at the story of the Christ child from the perspective of all of the supporting characters. Um, that there's all this kind of buzz and hum going around the birth of Jesus and looking at it, you know, first of all, from the prophets who were kind of anticipating the coming of the Messiah way down the road. What were they looking for? What did they feel like God was showing them? Um, we looked at it with the angels and the, and the divine from the perspective of God as light. How is God perceiving uh, the arrival of Jesus? Um, last week, Kristen talked us through Mary and Joseph and, and just the, in the midst of the chaos, you know, that you, I mean, I know you feel that as well sometimes where it's like, okay, here's the thing. Like, what's going to happen? And there's constantly all of this, this hurriedness around Mary and Joseph, but they're seeking, how do I be faithful in the midst of the thing that I don't understand or I don't know? And how do I trust God to lead me through that? And today we're going to be looking at, through the perspective of the shepherds. And so um, we heard in that reading that the shepherds are kind of out um, in the fields, it's night, they're kind of going about doing their thing, and then the angels of the Lord appear to them. And as we see so often in Scripture, whenever an angel shows up, the first thing they have to say is, do not be afraid, which is the kindness of God to say, I know you're afraid. And we're, we're all low-level anxiety anyway, but then when an angel shows up, it kind of messes the narrative, and you're just like... You know, it's very natural to do so. I saw a beautiful picture uh, this week of, of an angel and it had like 18 eyes on it and it actually looked like a gray alien, you know, with the big head or whatever. And you're like, yeah, it makes sense. That's about, that's about right. That's what we would be afraid of. But um, they show up and they say, do not be afraid. And they announce the good news to these shepherds. Um, and they witness this angelic chorus that kind of animates them and gets them out of their normal everydayness. And they go to seek the Christ child. And so what are we doing here how can we perceive Jesus through the lens of the shepherds? The shepherds remind us of the good news for all who desire a better world. This is why the shepherds are there. They're standing for us to recognize if you're looking for a better world than the one that you are currently living in, there is genuinely good news that the advent of the Christ child of Jesus, of God incarnate, is here and a new world is breaking out in the middle of the old one. So I want to begin by talking about the shepherds themselves to give us some context, but then we're going to be talking about the deeper metaphor that we find in the shepherd and sheep. So two things about the shepherds. Number one, um, their place in society in the first century, and number two, the perspective that they offered in their society. So firstly, shepherds had a marginal place in a power-hungry society. In scripture, there's a very conflicting relationship with the role of the shepherd. Um, shepherds are central to nomadic life. And that's, you know, kind of when the, when the tribe, the people group are moving from place to place, they're following their flocks, they're following their sheep. And so the shepherds were really important and really central in a nomadic lifestyle. And so we find that very early on in like the days of Abraham, for example. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. And these are nomadic tribal groups that are moving around the Middle East. But as Israel comes to be settled, they move from being a nomadic society to an agrarian society where they're starting to plant crops and they're, and they're harvesting. And, and there's still an integral role for shepherds, but they begin slowly to move to the outside of society. And they, by the time we enter into the first century, shepherds are kind of on the fringe and in the first century, some people would consider shepherds to be a bit of an outcast. It was kind of a dirty job. Think about it, that you're, you're out in these fields for weeks and months with these stinky sheep, and then you have to come into town and you probably reek of sheep. 
because you're constantly around them and it's not like you can just go and take a shower or whatever it might be. So there was kind of a negative connotation or at least that they were on the outside of society. There were these outcasts. They were second-class citizens. There's a bit of a negative stereotype. Some people even think that maybe it was an occupation that you had to take if you were like a thief or you know a really bad person. You ended up becoming a shepherd because that was the only job that was really available to you. Think about a lot of times in our own society, like the roles that felons can play, the jobs that felons are allowed to take because of their felony tends to put them out in the marginalized places of our society. They have to take the jobs that the rest of us wouldn't really want. And so there's this strange tension in scripture when we're talking about the place of the shepherd. Um, in the first century, being kind of the outcast, being kind of a little looked down upon as second-class citizens, but at the center of the story, the narrative follows this very strong imagery of being a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. God himself is using this imagery time and again of being a shepherd, Psalm 23 or Ezekiel 34, for example. And he's using that analogy, God is, to speak to his heart, his caring heart. And so you have to hold that that intention. And then ultimately we find later on in the ministry of Jesus, he speaks of himself as the good shepherd, kind of fulfilling that prophecy from Ezekiel 34. And I love that idea of God as a shepherd because what it says is that God is humble. God is down to earth. God is with us. And we see in these little archetypes throughout the story of Abraham, Moses, David, we hold in tension the image of the shepherd and the image of the king that he's both. God is sovereign. He is king. He is Lord overall, but he's also a shepherd. He's down there. He's with us. He's in the fringes. He's seeking out the ones who are lost and bringing them home. He's protecting us and guiding us. And that kind of brings us to the second thing that I want us to know about shepherds. Shepherds were trained to spot the perfect sacrificial lamb. This is actually something um, that Kristen brought up last week, which I found absolutely fascinating. That the shepherds, especially around the area of Bethlehem, were raising the sheep that were specifically for the temple system of the day. And so Bethlehem's only, what, five miles from Jerusalem. So if you're going to make the sacrifice in the temple, you stop at Bethlehem, you buy the sheep, you take the sheep into Jerusalem, you go to the temple, and then you have the priest sacrifice it for you, and that's the whole system. And so even though the shepherds are kind of outcasts, they're kind of dirty, there's a negative stereotype, they still have a function to play within the religious system of the day. Because they're the ones that can look and, and identify what are the traits of the perfect spotless lamb. Remember in this time when you're making the sacrifice, it can't be just any old sheep. It has to be perfect and raised without any blemish. And so these are the guys that could see that. And I think it's important to kind of pause here and recognize we tend to have a very negative stereotype of sacrifice. And we think of sacrifice today a lot in the way that the pagan world thinks of sacrifice. That sacrifice is to satisfy the bloodlust of the gods. The gods are angry and they're hungry and so you sacrifice the animals, or you throw a virgin into a volcano or whatever to kind of appease God and then he calms down. And, and it's really unfortunate, that's a pagan idea of sacrifice. But what's happened so often in Christianity is we've taken the pagan analogy of sacrifice. God is angry. He needs blood appeasement. We need to kill somebody or something to get in the way of us. And, oh, Jesus will do. He's not doing anything. Let's sacrifice, throw him into the volcano. And that kind of view of the cross is really tragic because what it does is it pits Jesus against God. 
And it paints this very sad portrait of who God is, that he's out for you, he's against you, but fortunately Jesus, as our big brother, kind of steps in the way and takes the blows from angry, drunk dad. And that's not what sacrifice was in Israel. It also wasn't about making payment. Sometimes we think sacrifice is like, oh, I'll do this, that, and the other, and then I'll have, like, like I'll buy my forgiveness from you because I did the thing, and then you have to forgive me. And so sometimes we think about that even today, right? Like, I'm going to make the sacrifice for God, which means I'm going to show up to Bible study, and I'm going to you know, do my quiet times, and I'm going to come to church every Sunday, and I'm going to be a really good person. And if I work hard enough at being a good person, then maybe I can find myself in the presence of God. If I work really hard, then I can become the kind of person that's allowed to be in God's presence. And so many of us have internalized one of those two wrong images of sacrifice, that it's about appeasing an angry God, or it's about working really, really hard and making lots of sacrifices so maybe we can get close to him and we miss the reality of what God is doing, first of all, in the sacrificial system in Israel, but secondly, through Jesus. For Israel, it was always about making peace with God. It was about making covenant that God was making as many sacrifices as Israel is. And there's even a fascinating theory that what God is doing is he's taking this pagan imagery of sacrifice, and the the Jews are kind of looking at every. We see this all the time through the story. The Israelites are always looking at everybody else and being like, well, they have a king. Well, they're making sacrifices. Well, God's got to be like that. And God takes the idea of sacrifice, but he begins to redeem it. And he begins to shift its meaning to say, okay, we'll do the sacrificial thing, but it's not going to be so that you can appease my anger, and it's not going to be so that you can earn something from me. It's about making a covenant promise. And what we find is we begin the story of Israel with the Ten Commandments, and here's how you make the sacrifice, and you got to measure out the sheep just like this, and you got to split it. It's got to be 18 inches apart, and so on and so forth. And there's all of these rules and regulations. And then later on in the story, we come to like you know Psalm 51, for example, where David goes, yeah, I'm not convinced that you actually want sacrifice. And we find that later in the prophets, they're like, you know what? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if that's what God wants. And it's fascinating when we flatten the scriptures and we make every scripture weigh the same as every other, and then we fall into this, this thing then where we have to say, well, scripture doesn't contradict itself. That doesn't make any sense. But if we actually allow the scripture to be a story, we see, oh, maybe God's working this tendency in us to make sacrifice in order to enter into intimacy with God. He's working it out of the system. Then later on, when we read in like Hebrews that Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all, it makes sense. God's saying, I'm going to do away with this violent system altogether that's never really been what the thing is about so that you will receive me as a gift, that you will receive grace without needing to earn it, without needing to be afraid of me. You can be with me. You can be close to me. And we don't need that because Jesus is the sacrifice once and for all. Amen. Now we're preaching. That's the gospel. So coming back to these shepherds, they're dirty people with special gifts. They're on the outside. There's a negative stereotype about them. They're a little bit icky or strange or or whatever, but they have this incredible gift to say, ah, that's the spotless lamb. That's the perfect sacrifice. Do you ever feel like that? That you feel conflicted? You're a little bit dirty. You're a little bit on the outside. You don't quite fit, but you still have this gift. You have this set of skills that can like offer to the thing. And the temptation is to believe that you're just a function in the system. 
See, when we start to think that way, now we're beginning to perceive like, okay, maybe the shepherds have more to reveal to us about our own heart and our desire and approach to Jesus uh, than we previously thought. So I want us to take a moment, I want you to dialogue with the person sitting next to you around these questions, because this is what I think is so helpful in understanding the shepherds. Who are the types of people that you consider on the fringes? And it might be in our society today as it's structured, or it might be just on your personal fringes. Jesus calls these the least of these. The kinds of people that you look at and you engage with or you read about online and you're like, ugh, those people. Who are those people to you? And just take a moment and talk about who are those people and how does our society value them? What are the messages that you've internalized from your culture that have said, oh yes, those people, they need to be over there. They're not worthy. They're kind of dirty. Okay, what's the society telling you that you've internalized? And then to take a moment and say, well, how does God value those people? Okay, what, what is maybe God actually trying to teach me about his heart and about the, the, the way in which he wants to organize the human family that might speak very different to my own culture? So take, we're going to take three or four minutes, just turn to the person next to you, and I want you to discuss that and be vulnerable. Share, who are your ugh, people? Two more minutes. Go ahead and wrap up. Go ahead and wrap up. We'll bring it back together. 
It's really important that we're training ourselves, even in the, this, the last series we did, Thinking Christianly, we have to train ourselves to look at what are the things that I'm assuming more based on my culture than I am upon kingdom culture. And to never take for granted how we perceive people, but always asking those questions. Why do I believe what I believe? Like, who's told me this thing? And am I actually taking for granted maybe how God is inviting me to see things? And constantly being in prayer about that, saying, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? How do you perceive this person, these people? And allow me to see that way first, so then I can begin to respond in a way that's kingdom-minded and isn't quite so sectarian or tribalistic. So I want us to, to bring us back to this, this lamb motif because I think that's key to understanding what God is doing, not just on Christmas with the birth of Jesus, but then through the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I think this is how it's helpful to understand the lambs and the shepherds, that the outsiders are coming into the peaceful kingdom because they're willing to receive peace with God and live in God's new world. Throughout the story of Jesus, we see this constant tension. Who are the people that look upon the spotless lamb and say, yes? And we see so often Jesus is challenging the people that are kind of stuck in their ways. They, they like the system because it works for them. And he's saying, it's the sinners, it's the tax collectors, it's the prostitutes that are rushing in to the kingdom of God. It's the, the least of these, the, the, the childlike ones. And it, what is happening there, the commonality with who Jesus is identifying as the people that are rushing into the kingdom versus those who feel threatened by the kingdom is that they see in Jesus the hope for a better world that comes through peace. Is this not what the angels are proclaiming as they're singing over the shepherds? It's peace on earth. And this is when it begins to sound like good news because people see in the spotless lamb the peace of God on display. And that's why, conversely, it becomes bad news for those of us who would rather do things our own way, that the system already works for us, that the way that we're operating in our life, we like that, and we want to hold on to control. We want to maintain the narrative that kind of puts us on top. And it becomes very bad news for us. We see this throughout the story. Herod, as we were looking at last week, is tremendously threatened by the coming of Jesus. The, the teachers of the law, they, they know the scriptures. They say, well, here it is. But there's nothing in them that makes them want to go and find Jesus because the system's working for them. We see it through the life of Jesus that there's these people that come to him and they just don't want to receive him. Because the systems that they have built inflict, peer, uh, inflict fear on the powerless. Because the systems that mankind build are based on what is your performance, your abilities, your privilege that makes you a more valuable person than the others. And this is not some kind of neo-Marxist thing where it's like the, the rich are inherently evil and the poor are inherently good. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. And I think a lot of times when we think about systems and all of this stuff, we, that's what we do. And we make it about capitalism versus communism or whatever. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. It's not about that the, you know, the, the, the oppressed are inherently good and valuable and they just need to have more power and the people that are at the top are just inherently bad and they just have less power. That's not what Jesus is doing. In fact, I think it's actually very patronizing of us to oppress people groups when we rob them of the ability to make mistakes and just say they're inherently good and these people are inherently bad. 
Now, what do we find? Jesus says, it's really difficult for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible, but it's really difficult because they've got some things that they need to work through. But it's not about them being rich and, and rich being evil. It's about, do you see the system that Jesus is creating? Go, I want to live in that world. That world looks way better than the world that I'm in now. And so we find Nicodemus in the beginning of Jesus' story in John, a Pharisee, you know, the religious elite. And it's not about the fact that he's a religious elite. It's the fact that he looks at Jesus and goes, I want to live in that world instead. Or the Roman soldiers at the crucifixion of Jesus. These men that are in power, they're, they're propping up the state. And it's the soldier that looks at Jesus and goes, no, he is the son of God. He's the real deal. Because that was the phrase that was used for Caesar, the son of God. And this guy goes, mm-mm, that's it. So it's not about being rich or poor. It's not about having power or not having power necessarily. It's about who looks at Jesus and says, I would rather live in his world than my own. Because his world is a world of peace. And my world, when I begin to encounter him, is a world of violence. Do you realize how insane it is that we try to convict people of their sin first before we introduce them to Jesus? You won't know what sin is until you meet him. You don't know what violence looks like until you encounter Jesus and then it begins to reflect back on you and you see that you've been participating in this system that does oppress people and does hurt people and ostracize people whether they're rich or poor or black or white or whatever it might be. You've been participating in that system because you have been wooed by the presence of God revealed in Jesus. And you say, I'd rather live in his world than mine. I'd rather give up whatever I've been participating in and take part in what he's doing. And so when we see Jesus as the perfect lamb, when we see this baby born as this spotless lamb, we're talking about peace. We're talking about shalom. And it doesn't just mean the absence of violence and the absence of war, although that's part of it. The word shalom means togetherness. It means wholeness. It means deep and profound care. It means prosperity for everyone. And when we understand Jesus is the prince of peace, when we recognize the lamb is the sign of the peaceful way of the kingdom, then we begin to understand what sacrifice really means. That in the sacrifice of Jesus as the spotless lamb, God is putting an end to the sacrificial system. He's putting an end to violence itself. Because he's offering himself for our sins. That we sinned our sins into Jesus and he took it upon himself and he buried it and he conquered sin and death. And then when he rose again, he was, vindic- uh, he was vindicated. He wasn't vindictive. He was vindicated, <laughs> which means he is who he says he was. And he inaugurated a dramatically new world. We find later in the story, like in the Gospel of John, for example, that when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, it's his cousin John the Baptist who knew him since they were in the womb, who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was the first one to identify that. When we understand the Lamb is the radically dramatic way that we are are witnessing the salvation of the world, it changes everything about what we think about salvation, about peace, about living in the kingdom. So I want to read to you uh, a very unconventional angle of the Christmas story from Revelation 5, because everybody needs a little bit of apocalypse when the Christmas season, right? 
So what I want to do is, we're going to have it on the screens if you want to read along, but I want to encourage you to close your eyes, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit kind of anoints our divine imagination as I'm reading this chapter of Revelation to give you an image. This is, like, this is kind of like the surrealist, heavenly perspective of this Christmas story. And I hope that the Lord begins to tie in, the, make the connections for you. So we're going to do this. Um, so Holy Spirit, would you anoint upon your dear ones here, uh, calm our minds, calm our hearts so we can be present in this moment. Would you give us pictures and images um, that make this scripture come alive so that we might really connect deeper with this idea that Jesus is the spotless lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lambs had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Merry Christmas. Thank you. This is another angle to the Christmas story. Maybe like John 1, it doesn't really feel like the baby and the manger and the shepherds and the, all that stuff. But this is the Christmas story. Behold, the lamb who was slain. And what I love in this, this is what's happening, is, is John the Revelator is looking. It's like in this scroll, here's the plan. This is how God's going to save the world. This is how he's going to do it. And the elder says, who's are worthy? And they look around and guess what? Nobody on earth is worthy of opening the scroll. There is no king 
There is no queen, there is no president, there is no prime minister, there is no organization 501c3 nonprofit that is worthy of opening the scroll to enact God's plan to save the world. It's not possible. None of us are worthy. Even the elders weren't worthy. John the Revelator wasn't worthy. And John weeps because he realizes among us humanity, none of us are worthy. But then the elder says, behold, the Lion of Judah the lion that's going to come in, the king, right? The lion is the image of the king. And he turns and he looks and he sees a lamb. It's a practical joke. The Bible's funny. Did you know that? We were looking for a lion, but we received a lamb who looked like he had been slain. And he was the one that was worthy. There's a lot of lions prowling around that make a lot of promises to us that they're going to be the ones that are going to save the world, they are going to put everything right, that they're going to come in and they're going to conquer and they're going to, they're going to gather us together through might and strength and power. But that's not how God decided he was going to save the world. He did it through a lamb. Because peace is not the destination that we're trying to get to. Peace is the path that we walk that leads us in salvation. And we follow Jesus, not kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents. We follow Jesus to a new and better world. And that new and better world broke into this one the moment that that baby was born. And that's what the shepherds are there to tell us. So my challenge to you today is, do you have a shepherd's eye to see the perfect spotless lamb that takes away your sins? and offers you a better world? Is the good news of the kingdom good news for you in the same way that it was good news for the tax collectors, in the same way that it was good news for a bunch of ragtag fishermen, in the same way it was good news for Roman soldiers, in the same way it was good news for Nicodemus, in the same way that it was good news all over the world that every tribe and tongue in every group of people, there are people that look and say, I would rather live in his world than my own. I'd rather participate in his system than the one that I've been propping up because I think it suits me. I think this is my challenge for all of us, and I want to invite you to stand with me as we come to the table. As Christians, we aren't trying to make the world a peaceful place. Because when you and I think our job is to try to make the world a peaceful place, we end up just screwing things up even more. Because why, how do we try to get peace? We do it through violence. We do it through kind of demonstrating our strength. We do it through trying to take control of things. We aren't trying to make the world a peaceful place. We're trying to show the world it has already been saved to peace through Jesus. It just doesn't know it yet. The world has already been saved through peace, through the spotless lamb. We just don't know that yet. But when we awaken to that reality that the new world has broken out in the old one, our job then becomes to participate in what God is already doing through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through his church. And we go out to reveal the peace that has always been there. How do we do this? We follow the lamb we follow the lamb who's also a shepherd. We live into his peace. We look to him and we say, how am I to live today? How am I to see other people? 
Am I taking for granted the way that I view others and the way I view myself because of the culture around me? Or am I pausing and asking, show me again, show me again what the kingdom looks like, that I might live a little bit more into that reality today. And so as we come to the table, we are making a declaration that this, this is where we follow God. This is how we follow Jesus, by taking into himself the sacrifice that is the perfect lamb, that somehow when we take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus, it's, trans it's doing something to us. It's transforming us. He becomes our sustenance. He becomes our health. He becomes our salvation because he has wiped out our sins and he's welcomed us to live into a new world. This is where the new world of God begins to break out. And we get to participate in that. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to the table, starting in the first rows and working your way back. Heavenly Father, in this Christmas season, may we echo the words of the angelic chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This Christmas season, Lord, may that become more and more of our reality. That we step deeper into your kingdom and we let go more of the way of empire. The, the old ways of thinking. The old ways of judging how people are valued. The old ways of, of assuming how we think that we need to make ourselves worthy to come to you. May we come as we are. And believe that as we participate in this sacrament, this sacred act, that you will meet us and that you will transform us so that we leave this place looking a little bit more like you because we radiate the kingdom of heaven. Bless us as we bless you. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.